Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. So I'm Rebecca McEnroy with KUT, and we do these Views and Brews a couple times every month. So without further ado, we have a very special guest host this evening, KUT's senior editor. He has been on the campaign trail with Rick Perry, some other fantastic candidates. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. He's even going to go to the Ted Cruz uh, party in a little bit. Yep. I'll be in Houston for his uh, election night party. Yeah. We'll have Ashley Lopez in El Paso covering uh, Congressman O'Rourke. Yep. Mm-hmm. Lots going on, and, and so that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Philpott, thank you. Well, thank you all for coming out. Um, it's not raining, but I mean, what are you going to do, stay home and take a shower? No. So uh, thanks for coming out tonight. I hope everyone's enjoying their non-watered beverages. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about the midterms tonight, and you know... KUT is focused a whole lot on local races, but we know that there are more than just some city council and uh, mayor's stuff to talk about. So that's why we brought in people that know a whole lot about everything else in the universe, uh, starting with ABC's chief political analyst, Matthew Dowd. And the Texas Tribune's editor-in-chief, Emily Ramshaw. And last but not least, uh, KUT senior reporter Audrey McGlinchey, who covers City Hall and all things city-related, uh, and does some investigative reporting and likes to get into arguments with Fred Lewis on the phone. But he starts them. I just want everyone to know that. <clears throat> um, all right. Well, uh, so let's let's start with this one, this election so far. Just a day, almost two days into it is a little bit different uh, in Texas for uh, at least one reason that we actually have numbers on. Uh, here in Travis County, uh, about 47,100 and some people voted on the first day of early voting. That is almost three times the number of people that voted in the last midterm election in 2014. Uh, it is also about 100 people more than voted on the first day of early voting in the presidential election in 2016. So there are other counties across the state, especially the big urban counties, that are seeing similar numbers. So at the moment, it looks like this is going to be the kind of election that will get closer to presidential turnout than midterm turnout. Uh, and maybe let's just start with is this, uh, Texas is not unique in this kind of enthusiasm, is that right? Uh, no, it's, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in Nevada, it's happening in Florida, it's happening all over the country, it's happening in Minnesota. So it's a, it's a national thing going, a national phenomenon going on <clears throat> that I think has been brewing since November 2016. Um, and people, I think, have been figuring out a way how do they express how they feel. We saw it in all the special elections, almost every single special election, not every, but almost every special election set a record uh, over the course of the last two years that have been held in various places. And so I think this is just another, another avenue of it. We've seen it in rallies, we've seen it in a whole bunch of ways, but I think this voting does, is gonna mean it's gonna set a record. Uh, it will definitely be the highest turnout midterm numbers wise of any midterm that we've ever had. We, we might break 100 million people, We've never broken 90 million people in a midterm. And so I think we'll break 100 million people in the general election in 2016. I think it was 135 million. That's a presidential. So 
Um, it'll trend towards that. It, it's hard to tell, and you may get into this, it's hard to tell exactly what it means right now because Republicans, the the sort of Trump-based Republican is engaged, and Democrats are very engaged. And as you watch the turnout patterns all over, um, there, there's a mix of results right now, but we don't really know because it's hard to tell um, in jurisdiction by jurisdiction, and especially in a state like Texas where we don't have party registration, what it all means. But it's definitely gonna mean the, the turnout's gonna be really heavy, and it's probably gonna be an election night that's gonna go on longer than election night. So, I, I can oh, add to yeah. that just a second. The Texas Tribune has a tool landing tomorrow morning that will show you day by day early voting totals for the 30 counties in Texas that account for 77% of the state's population. And it's not up yet, but I can tell you I looked at it before I left the office. And you're seeing that record day one turnout in every one of those 30 counties. Uh, including counties that are traditionally very conservative strongholds. I think the bigger question marks are gonna be in communities like uh, Harris County and in Dallas County, um, you know, districts that you saw going for Hillary Clinton in 2016, um, and sort of jury is out on what that's gonna mean for some of those congressional races or, or state house races, so. Well, and I was gonna Sneak ask peek. You, yeah, I was gonna ask you, Emily, do you have any sense, you know, when you're talking with your reporters, is there any kind of consensus as to what a presidential-like turnout could mean in Texas? It's just really hard to know because folks are mobilized so heavily on both sides of the aisle right now. I mean, I'm curious what, what this could mean different things for different communities, but I think the numbers we're looking at right now, I'm also curious if these numbers keep up, if there was so much excitement that a lot of people showed up in the first day of early voting or the first couple of days of early voting. Are more people just shifting to early voting so they don't have to wait in the lines on election day? I do think we'll see um, record or close to presidential turnout, but I'm still not sure what that means at the end of the day. I, I do think, I do think, and in spite of what's been said, I think on the media, some of the media in the last 48 hours, Democrats still maintain a substantial enthusiasm advantage. And the number I think that is the most important number to me to look at is the number of people that are strongly disapprove of Donald Trump versus the number of people that strongly approve of Donald Trump. The strongly approved number has not changed for Donald Trump in 19 months. It's right around 24, 25%. That number has not moved. The number that is strongly disapproved also has not changed much, and it's right at around 42 or 43%. That's a huge difference. If that unfolds on election day, where people, 42% of the people who dis strongly disapprove of Donald Trump, which is likely because they're most engaged in turnout, then that means the Democrats have a big advantage on election day. So I'm gonna do a little math real quickly before uh, I jump to Audrey. Um, we were talking about, you know, so what does it mean if, if it's a presidential year instead of a, a midterm year in terms of turnout? On the Democratic side, if the number of Democrats that voted for Hillary Clinton were to vote for uh, Lupe Valdez in a normal midterm election, that's a win for Democrats because more people voted for Hillary Clinton than voted for Greg Abbott four years ago. But, of course, if both sides are mobilized, then then it's a wash again, right? Because you still have more Republicans that come out to vote. Um, Audrey, is, uh, <laughs> I guess the first question is, has it been hard for anyone to pay attention to the city elections with all of this? I mean, it's almost impossible for people to pay attention to the governor's race when you're talking about Congressman O'Rourke and Senator Cruz. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it, it really has been. Um, there are six city council races right now, including the mayor's race. One city council race is unopposed. Um, and also just, you know, in terms of, of filling out the ballot, right? If you do a, a part, you know, if you vote straight one party way, that's not going to include the council races because they don't they don't run on a party. Or so all those bonds, the propositions All the, the propositions, the 11 propositions. Um, so I think, unfortunately, when people get down the ballot, they're kind of like, ooh, I should have done some research. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I would encourage people to to figure out what council district you're in. Not all council districts are up for uh, re-election, um, but the mayor is, everyone votes on the mayor. Um, and do a little digging. You know, obviously we tend to have mostly um, liberal progressive candidates in Austin, but there are some stark differences. And I think um, a lot of the decisions that council makes affects us more on a daily basis than perhaps state or federal decisions. And I think there, there's been a lot of talk about um, anger or energy or whatever from the 2016 election that has improved the number of, uh, not just the number, but the quality of candidates at like the federal level, congressional level. But, you know, we've done all these forums for the city council candidates and the the people that are running this time are so much better than they were the first time we had the 10-1 election. I mean, it was, we finally get this big chance at democracy in Austin, and we essentially had one good candidate in every single race. And this time, do you, I mean, do you feel like the, the candidates are uh, exponentially better? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they come out kind of knowing the solutions that they're proposing for various issues, like affordable housing, which is one of the biggest issues. Um, and we had, um, you know, a mayoral um, debate last night, um, and there's um, seven candidates in the mayoral race. Um, and so I think we're seeing a lot more, I guess, sophistication when it comes to these candidates, um, which is exciting um, if people are paying attention, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where, um, where are the hot spots in Texas, uh, Emily, in terms of the races that, that y'all are looking at? And I guess we'll stick with congressional for now, but maybe get to state house in a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, f f we are paying a lot of attention outside of the Beto O'Rourke Ted Cruz race, which everyone and their mother is paying attention to uh, nationally as well as here in Texas. Um, we are focused on a handful of congressional races that actually um, may end up being more competitive than the Senate race. So um, I'll just list off four that we're paying close attention to. Uh, on, we have this list of sort of the 30 hottest races. And among the top 10 hottest races, we are following our, um, the race between Congressman um, John Culberson, the Republican in Houston, and Lizzie Panel Fletcher, who's the Democrat who's running against him. She's gotten a lot of support nationally from Democrats. Um, again, that's a district that went for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, the Pete Sessions matchup with um, Colin Allred in Dallas County is another one we're watching very closely for that same reason. Those two could look like they could be quite competitive. Um, two others that are probably slightly less competitive, but depending on the winds of, of change in that particular uh, cycle, we're looking at uh, locally the um, Round Rock race that's incumbent John Carter and uh, the Democrat MJ Hager, who was sort of the, the you know woman who really pushed for um, women in combat, has a pretty amazing veteran story covered in tattoos, which always is kind of a selling point when you're in central Texas. Uh, and then um, 
It is, the polling is showing it to be less close than we thought it might be, but the race between uh, Republican Will Hurd uh, in um, sort of El Paso, San Antonio, and Gina Ortiz-Jones, his opponent, Democratic opponent in that race, he's the one who is so friendly with Becho O'Rourke that the two of them took that um, widely publicized road trip where they stopped at many Dairy Queens on the way back to Washington. He is actually, I believe, not endorsed um, in that race because he did not want to endorse against right, a, a friend of his. Beto has not endorsed in that race. So those are the four I'd say we're keeping our eyes on. Are there any uh, additional congressional races in Texas that you have the, spotted? The only other race is the, I know, is the Joseph Kopser race, which is part of Austin, it has a possibility. Um, I, I think that Roy is, tr the Republican is treating it as if a real race. So that is a race. I mean, the Beto effect, well, you can, we can have a conversation about the Beto effect, which is true in some other states. It's true in Florida with the Democratic candidate running for Florida may pull the incumbent Democratic senator across the line. Beto may not have enough to win, but Beto's effect may have enough to pull congressional races across. And that's one of the Joseph Kopser race, because of the turnout, I think, of so many people in pockets that Joseph Kopser has could pull him, could pull at a very close race. And he's a really interesting candidate. I mean, actually, among the Democratic congressional challengers, there are a ton of veterans. They were all up on stage at the Tribune Festival, and I was thinking to myself how amazing it is. They've really got, like, the military market cornered. It's a very interesting phenomenon this year. And Chip Roy, uh, uh, Roy and Copser did a uh, uh, a debate on, I guess, KXAN, local NBC here, uh, or no, it was KVU, I'm sorry, uh, right when the floodwaters hit, so nobody saw it. But uh, I watched it, um, and uh, it was interesting to see Roy actually really presenting himself, uh, you know, was a staffer uh, for Senator Cruz, but really was presenting himself as a more of a Republican moderate in the race. Um, so as Emily was saying, he's taking this as if it's a serious race. I think if he did not think it was a serious race, he might uh, show more, present more like his former boss uh, on the campaign trail. Another person who's not taking his own race very seriously is the governor, who is not concerned at all about Lupe Valdez, who's turned out to be a pretty terrible challenger. And he has, is basically spending like this week and next week, um, you know, going to 30, helping 30 other Republican candidates, uh, spending money and showing up in their districts. So he's actually sort of decided his own race is so non-competitive that he's spending all his energy on all these other races. So we here in Texas like to think that uh, this is the greatest political race season ever in the history of the universe. Um, what nationally do, I mean, is, is Texas still just red and, oh, that's nice, Texas, we'll see what happens? Well, I think, I think there has been a sense, and I, I live here, but commute to New York, and so I, I've been a believer that Texas is moving to purple. It, it's been a slow slog. Um, but it's moving that way. I think that what people have hooked on now is Beto's candidacy, Beto Works candidacy has sort of charged things up and it, because it's in single digits and people can argue whether it's a three point race or a four point race or a nine point race, it's somewhere, I think it's somewhere in there. So his, just his candidacy and I think the fact that so many people that um, don't have, uh, let's just say this diplomatically, don't have a kind attachment to Ted Cruz. Um, uh, and so I think that combination, they've this, this young candidate who's come on gangbusters, and then when he showed up with you know $38 million raised in one month or whatever, and it just automatically sort of triggered it. And I think 
that's, you know, I think the Nationals would like Texas to be competitive because it then provides many avenues to cover races and all of that. But I think it's a combination of factors, the, how much of dislike there is for Ted Cruz, but also this, well, who is this? And it's funny, we call him the young candidate, new age candidate. He's only a year younger than Ted Cruz, but he seems like separated by so many generations. <laughs> but he's one year younger than Ted. I, has anyone seen Ted Cruz on a skateboard? <laughs> yeah, okay. I have not. Don't, Although, don't be yeah. downhill. <laughs> Although I do think there's this national perception of Ted Cruz. Oh, nobody likes Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is a jerk. You know, even the people who work with him don't like Ted Cruz. Yet you see this rally, this Trump rally in Houston last night where they're, you know, at capacity, had to move to a bigger venue, ended up with something like 20,000 people there. You know, I, I would sincerely doubt that the people in that crowd who are so animated and excited think that Ted Cruz is a jerk. I mean, they think he's there doing his bidding. Well, and I think also it, it kind of runs along with um, r national Republicans who we've seen fall, in, uh, fall behind uh, President Trump. Uh, they may not like Ted Cruz. They may think he's a odd duck, but they certainly uh, like the things that he votes yes on. Um, and so... That's well. He's a vote. So yeah. when the Senate when the Senate's fifty one forty nine, right? I, I I would think I was thinking about this the other day. If you told the Republicans you can keep the Senate, but Ted Cruz loses, would you be okay with that? Um, there'd probably yes. be a lot of Republican senators who'd say, "Yeah, that's fine. That's fine by me." Um, but I think they're worried about that because it became a race. And one of the things I don't think has been talked about enough is what's happened is because Ted's, I don't know what he'll end up spending, 30, 35 million dollars, because it's become a competitive race here, that money, there's a lot of money that's not being spent in places like Nevada or Arizona or Missouri um, or Florida as much because money had to be put here. So I think that's a factor that because it's gotten more competitive here, it's caused it to be Republicans not to be able to allocate money like they would normally do. Hey, Audrey. Hey, Ben. What's up? You in the city having fun down there? Oh, yeah. Uh, I did want to ask, you know, we talked, you talked a little bit earlier about the idea of uh, the, uh, uh, that we have seen more candidates. They have been more qualified. Uh, have you noticed certain issues, topics that maybe have, I mean, uh, affordability has been the big theme throughout, but have you seen more national topics that have been coming down to these city uh, races, people trying to, you know, somehow talk about them, even though it's maybe not exactly city purview? Yeah, I mean, maybe not so in the city races, but certainly at the city council, I mean, Im immigration, obviously, which the city has very little control over, even though it likes to call itself a sanctuary city, but there's no legal definition for that. You know, that really means very little. Um, and so, but that really hasn't figured into, into um, the races too much. It's really been affordable housing, transportation, um, police oversight, um, things that are being spoken about on the national level. And I was talking to you earlier about how I was interested in the fact that there are a lot of national um, Democrat, Democrats who are interested in housing issues in cities like Senator Kamala Harris um, and Cynthia Nixon, who failed in her run for governor of New York, but um, did run on um, changing a lot of renter laws um, in the state of New York. And so I think there are a lot of Democrats at the federal level who are, whether it's because a lot of their bases in urban centers are really, um, you know, considering what, what the federal government can do when it comes to housing and affordable housing. Can I ask Audrey yeah. a question? Uh, 
My dog walker texted me today and said, I've been paying so much attention to all these, you know, statewide races. I don't know who to vote for in the mayor's race. What is the difference between these two candidates? What is the difference between the mayoral candidates? That is a great question. I would say not too much, but I would say the biggest issue. So, so the two, the two that have raised the most money um, are obviously the incumbent mayor Steve Adler and Laura Morrison, who served two terms on the city council. Um, the biggest difference between them, I would say, is the way they think about growth in the city of Austin. Um, the mayor is much more open to this scary word of density, um, but this idea, I think, that as the city of Austin grows, maybe we shouldn't be sprawling. Maybe we should be looking to. To build more housing in the inner parts of the city, which can help us with um, public transit. Um, Laura Morrison has been a real advocate for um, neighborhoods, specifically single-family neighborhoods, and really emphasizing that that this growth, this density, should be going on major roads, not really in the inner neighborhoods. So, so that's the biggest difference. But again, you know, it's hard with. I think a lot of folks feel like, well, you know, anyone running for Austin City Council is probably a liberal of some sort, so it really doesn't matter who I vote for. But I would argue that um, that it really does, because like I mentioned, I mean, we're going to be talking about whatever the new version of Code Next is coming up, and those two candidates will have a very different take on it. Um, so I think the biggest issue at the city, which is housing affordability, we do really see people who, who maybe, you know, even though they don't run on parties, are Democrats, voting very differently on these things. I, I think one of the things that I found most interesting about that forum we had last night is that the talk of density finally moved beyond, at least for me and how much I was paying attention, finally moved beyond just affordable housing. Uh, you know, it seemed like during Code Next it was always, well, we have to have density or we're never going to have more affordable housing. But then all of a sudden last night it was, well, if we don't have density, our transit systems are never going to find their footing. Well, if we don't have density, you know, this isn't going to happen. And I that, I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the subway in New York works for a reason, right? <laughs> I mean, it's because we have so many people and the ridership is so great. Um, and here in Austin, we just don't have great bus ridership, I think, um, for a lot of reasons, you know, frequency of bus routes, et cetera. But I think um, if there's a way that the city can put more riders closer together, we can see, you know, um, the incentive for Cap Metro to kind of keep doing what they're doing. And then uh, the one other thing that I think was interesting about a lot of these was the conversation of the city versus the state. Um, we have one Republican in Travis County who uh, has very much uh, uh, been involved in pushing back against things that the city has passed. That's Paul Workman, who uh, his district takes up about the entire western third of Travis County. Um, and uh, he, you know, he plans to file legislation uh, if he is reelected uh, on, gosh, I guess the, the sick leave. Um, and I, there was, I feel like there was one other thing that he was going to file a bill on that the city did. There that was like one about a tree ordinance. There was the plastic bag well, stuff. Yes, I mean, yes. the, the, the list went on and on. I can't remember which ones he settled on, but all the, the slew of local control issues that are going to come back up before the legislature again. But sick leave was, I think, the big primary one. I, did you find it interesting how many uh, of the candidates were kind of focused on, especially, I guess, the big one was in District 8, where we actually did have, or currently have a more conservative council member, um, you know, the idea, uh, and, and Paul Workman's district runs through District 8, the idea of the city versus the state and what, what kind of relationship can they have? 
Yeah, and I think in many ways the city has kind of accepted its position in that relationship, for better or for worse. Um, you know, in in issues I've covered, um, for example, fair chance hiring, um, which is a law that the city passed a little over two years ago that says, you know, all private employers in the city have to wait till the final round of hiring before they can check someone's criminal background. Um, everyone was super excited about that. Activists were like, yes, big win. Um, the city waited two years to enforce that because they were scared of the state. <laughs> and it was not something they publicized, but they, but they basically said to me, you know, the time that we were supposed to start enforcing this was the time that the legislature was in session. And so we, we held off on that. So I think in many ways, um, yes, obviously this antagonistic relationship exists, but I think in some form the city has accepted, you know, we can pass some things, but maybe we just hold off on actually you know, doing anything with it to see what happens. So and I think Audrey and I, or maybe it was Saida, we're talking about the idea of maybe the city's relationship will be less confrontational if they feel like whoever replaces Joe Strauss in the house is more like Joe Strauss and less like a clone of Dan Patrick. Um, so that brings us to what kind of things might be happening in the Texas House in this session, Emily. Um, the Senate appears, I mean, there's one Senate race up in the Dallas area that may be interesting, but even though, uh, even if that were to flip, the, the Lieutenant Governor uh, and the Republicans would still have the advantage of the three-fifths rule. Yeah, right. I mean, the Senate so, is going nowhere from yeah. a conservatism standpoint. It's still totally entrenched no matter what happens in November. Uh, you know, the House is also, the Texas House is also still overwhelmingly conservative. I mean, even, Democrats have the chance, I think, of picking up anywhere between eight and ten. They could possibly pick up eight to ten seats um, this time around, but even that is not going to make a marked difference. I mean, this is still an incredibly conservative chamber. What it could do is play a role in the in the speaker's race. Obviously, as you know, Joe Strauss has stepped down. Uh, there will be a competitive speaker's race, and the question is whether someone will be, whether a Republican who will be elected who is a more moderate Republican like Joe Strauss, or whether a Republican will be elected who is much farther to the right, you know, f falling into the sort of Freedom Caucus Tea Party category. Uh, and if Democrats do claim eight to 10 additional seats, they will have a seat at the bargaining table with more moderate Republicans around uh, possibly getting a more moderate speaker. So that's why the House race actually does matter to Democrats and the number of seats they pick up matters, even though the chamber's power is not going to change dramatically. So let's talk about that other big house that uh, might change some. Uh, we might see, I think I've told people that we might see like five seats on the outside flip in Texas if, you know, things fall the right way. Um, uh, Everyone, of course, that doesn't live in Texas or that does live in Texas is interested about what seats might flip outside of the state and how that might change the House setup. Have you? Sure. So I want to add one thing because we are on the state legislatures. This has been underreported nationally. So we the, all, all the conversation is about is where's the Senate going to be and where's the state House going to be? Where's the U.S. House going to be going to be in this? And there's been a lot of debate back and forth. What's been underreported is the shift that is likely to occur, which is a big thing for the next 10 years in state legislatures around the country and in gu gubernatorial offices around the country. And the perfect examples of this are Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio and Pennsylvania and Iowa which have all been dominated by Republicans and through, and they, that's what enabled them to draw districts, that's what enabled them to do a lot of things, and Florida is another one that's good, and there is going to be a, if, if the 
if the patterns hold true that right now we expect, there's going to be a shift over from Republicans to Democrats in a lot of state legislatures. There's gonna be a lot of split legislators instead of unified ones that have been unified Republican. And there's gonna now be more unified Democratic legislatures where the state Senate, the state house, and the governor is a Democrat. That's been under talked about. And I think that's gonna be actually in the long term of what happens in the next in the congressional races in 2022, 2024, 2026 is going to be much more impacted by that in this. Now on the on the US House, I gave up on the I, after election night 2016 and all these prediction models and all the things that happened, I was like just let people vote, just let people vote. Don't I don't like, you know, Nate Silver's a really smart guy and he's got all these 76.7 and I'm just like I don't care. Um, it doesn't really, and, and it, the argument always is, well, we said there's always a chance. Well, nobody pays attention to the chance. Um, so with that being said, if you, if you got in a time machine and went back a year ago and asked everybody what was going to happen, a year ago from now, 12 or 13 days, will be 13 days out from election day. A year ago, they would have said, the Republicans will keep the Senate, maybe pick up a seat or two, Democrats will take the House, and there'll be various competitive governors, governors races, and Donald Trump's approval rating will be somewhere between 40, 40 and 44. That's what people would have told you a year ago. If you took the time machine and went back six months ago, they would have told you the exact same thing. If you did that right before Labor Day, they would have told you the same thing. And all these events happens where everybody talks about and then said, well, how's this gonna change it? What's gonna adjust and all of that? As of today, if you ask most people, they would say the same thing. Uh, you know, we had the Brett Kavanaugh hearing and everybody weighed in on what that meant or how that was going to change things and all that. Pretty much right now, the numbers are exactly where they were a year ago. Donald Trump's approval number is somewhere around 42 or 43 percent. The chances that the House will go Democratic are the same place they were a year ago. The chances are that the Republicans will keep the U.S. Senate are about the same chances that they were at the same a year ago. So I think all of that, but I think there is so much mystery that of these, what's really fundamentally gonna happen on turnout and then how that affects various places around the country that I think it's, it's, it's gonna be really interesting night. You recall that less than 100,000 votes in 2016 decided the electoral college and ultimately decided the presidency. I could easily draw you a thing that the same number of votes will decide the United States Senate and will decide the U.S. outs and will decide three or four governor's races. 100,000 total votes spread across five or six states. That's where we are if, if they're distributed, if they're distributed in a way which could easily happen because so many close races and there's so many, Democrats have an edge on a lot of U.S. House races that allow people to say they're likely to take it, but the edge is two points. The edge is two percentage points. And the same is true of the United States Senate. Everybody says they have, but the edge is two or three percentage points to the Republicans on that. So um, I think that's, you know, that's if you sort of say, had to say bet on this and where it was gonna be. But I think we, we will never have seen an election where more than 100 million people vote in a midterm, and we won't have seen an election where so many races were gonna be decided on by so few numbers. Is it? The Democrats need 23 flips to take Congress? 20, 23 flips. They basically have 15 in the bank. And um, I was going to ask, it seemed, I'm kind of fascinated with Pennsylvania on this because Pennsylvania had a court come in and redistrict a, a dozen of their seats or more, and, uh, 
and, and like something like nine of them are maybe ex- or eight of them are expected. Well, to flip, I think or? there's a basically it will be a net gain for the Democrats in Pennsylvania from all of that by two or three. It'll be a net gain of two or three. Oh, I thought it was more California. Than there'll be a net gain of five or six Democrats will take out either will it be open seats or take out Republicans in California. Um, Texas, I think the Democrats are counting, are kind of in their head thinking two they get. And if they get more than two, it's a benefit, but they want two races here, whatever two those are. And, and, and Emily pointed out the two that are most likely. Um, but I think there's so many places like that. And I think on election night, I hope everybody turns on ABC News and then checks the Texas Tribune. You can just keep them both up concurrently. Each device, right? TV, internet, radio. Is watch, you'll get a pretty good indication early on because there's going to be races called in Maine and New Jersey and Florida. And what you'll learn quickly is if a wave is coming, if Democrats are starting to start simultaneously picking up most of all of those competitive races. But if all of a sudden it starts splitting, like the Republicans keep the race in in Maine, but lose the race in New Jersey, and then keep a race in Virginia, and then lose. So watch that. That will be that early on by 9 o'clock, you will start to get a sense is, is this going to go all the way, have to go all the way to California? Or is there that basically people decided, no, it's time that we have a check on Donald Trump, or the Democrats need to be given a chance, or whatever it is. And all of those races start clicking one way. And you'll know that early. So uh, we're in Austin, so I'll ask a touchy-feely question. How do you feel about everyone saying that a blue wave is coming? How do I feel about that? <laughs> I, think, I think around the newsroom, people ask me enough about it, and I feel sick. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't have a sick response to it, but... Um, I mean, I think, I mean, it's obviously a term of art that's been used and used and used and used and used and used and used used over and over and over again too too much. There is a wave. The Democrats will outvote Republicans in this last election. That is, there's, that will absolutely happen. Democrats will have, more votes will be cast for Democratic congressional candidates than for Republican congressional candidates in this election, no doubt. The question then becomes, is it a wave that's 11 feet tall or of a wave that's four feet tall. And that will fundamentally determine. So Democrats, will there will be a wave, but the Republicans have built, I told, I said the other day that Democrats have to win because they're at a disadvantage because of gerrymandering. Um, they have to win the popular vote for Congress by more than five million votes. Think about that. Hillary Clinton won the presidential race by three million votes, but lost the electoral college. The same pattern is holding true in the other races because of how Democrats are distributed around. The Republicans have managed, and people can argue whether it's, it's that where they did it, finagled it, or however they did it, have distributed their votes in a much more efficient way than Democrats are distributed around the state, around the country. The Democrats have to win the popular vote by more than five million votes to take the House back. In in Texas, my feeling about that is is sort of deep skepticism. I mean, you know, in the for the 
17 years I've been covering the Texas legislature and Texas politics, I've been hearing, the, the moment I st set foot in Texas, they said, Texas is about to be purple. Texas is about to be purple. And I've been hearing that same refrain every election cycle since I moved to Texas. And now I just don't believe it anymore. I know I know well enough not to listen. And you know, the, the problem with the last election cycle nationally was that the media wasn't enough places. The media was listening to the same people who were, who were noisy and weren't really sort of connecting with these people who felt disempowered and felt um, you know, like they needed a change in sort of the heartland of this country. And Texas has a whole heck of a lot of heartland that I think that, you know, the, the sort of noisy voices, the, the Beto O'Rourke crew, you hear so much of it. And I think you hear less from the folks who are in parts of the state that don't have as many people, um, you know, advocating noisily on their behalf. One of the things that I, that I think will be fascinating to look at here, and I think this is NBC put out this analysis today about the early vote, and they said in Texas the early vote favors Republicans. I don't, ne I don't necessarily agree with that from my analysis. And one of the reasons they said that was because Williamson County is voting all of these votes. Right? And I think that's not necessarily, a, that's a read of Williamson County, where Williamson County was eight years ago or 10 years ago. Because there's a lot of votes now that are a lot in those edges around Williamson County, and I'm curious what you think about this, that are more like Austin than they were, than they are like Georgetown or Gerald. It's been really interesting, and Audrey can probably weigh in on this, but you know, when people, people always want to talk to the media, people who are interested in getting involved in politics, and they say, like, what should I do? Where should I go? Where will I be most useful? And you know, when you take off your journalist hat, the answer is in the suburbs and the exurbs is where you're going to be most useful, because like Matt just said, like, it's, it is really in those communities that are changing the fastest. Yeah, I was recently talking to a reporter in San Francisco who reports a lot on housing in San Francisco, and she was like, I am now a suburban reporter because so many people are being pushed into the suburbs, and that's really where she felt like conversations were happening. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things, I live in Wimberley, and Hayes County, it, Hayes County has now become a purple county, right? And I don't think people have caught up to the fact, and that's been driven again by that movement to Kyle and Buda and all of that things that's happened there from there. I think, I was, in 1988, I worked for, I worked for Lloyd Benson and did his Senate campaign. And on election night, he won overwhelmingly against a congressman from Amarillo, a Republican named Bo Bolter. Just, it was a landslide. And I looked at the data and I looked at it. We won like 59 to 41. We lost the white vote on election night in 1988. And I wrote a memo saying Texas is going to be red on election day in 1988. That came about six years later. It was a slow process. There was 1990 interruptions. And I think we're in a similar process in Texas. It's not as fast as everybody keeps talking about. And I actually don't think it serves a good purpose to keep saying it like it's coming and coming and then people are like, oh my God, what happened to Wendy Davis? She got beat by 20 points or whatever. Um, and I, so I always, my expectation for Texas was always 2022 or 2026. Um, I think Beto, I don't know, I would be curious if Emily thinks that what would Democrats think would, if he loses, is there a percentage that they think was, okay, this is a good sign, we can build on this, or it doesn't matter? 
I, I think the smart thing to think with if he comes within striking distance, and by striking distance I mean between five and ten points, I mean, if he comes within five and ten points of Cruz, that is a victory for Democrats in Texas and for the mobilization efforts here that Democrats have largely failed at so far. The problem is all of these people who are so excited about it are going to be just totally dejected and probably will sit out the next go-around if they don't have a candidate who's as charismatic as Beto O'Rourke has been for them. So I think that's, that's the big, you know, bummer if you care about voter participation is I think a lot of this has been driven by the sort of cult of Beto and Beto's, you know, super charisma. Beto winning, though, I'll say this. I think still Beto still has a chance to win, um, and though I've always given it. It's probably one in three, but I do think he has a chance to win. If Beto was, would, would win in Texas, um, that would create a, I mean, that would be an unbelievable storyline. I mean, you're talking about a national thing, come down here and do that. But it wouldn't be the most surprising, Beto, if I turned up on election night and looked across race, it wouldn't be the most surprising thing to happen because I think he actually has, depending on the turnout, I actually think he's probably five points behind today, five or six points behind today, which as Emily said, is unreal that he's even within that range. That's not a margin if the turnout patterns are adjust and a whole bunch more Hillary voters come out and vote versus even if they set a record on big term, midterm turnout, if a whole bunch of Hillary voters come out, he could come across, come over the line. It's still an outside shot, but I think it's still a shot. I, and I think, yeah, it, it might take, if there's going to be any momentum on this, it's going to take some kind of a Democrat win. Maybe it's, maybe it's O'Rourke, maybe it's, um, uh, the attorney general's race, uh, Justin Nelson, maybe it's Sid Miller losing in the agriculture race. Uh, but uh, uh, it does seem like the Democrats would, especially the ones here in Texas that have been beaten down for the last you know, two decades, uh, a win is something that they might be able to build on. Um, I think that's about all we've got up here. If uh, we've got about 15 minutes, I guess, to maybe see if there's some questions out in the audience. Miss Chloe is going to wander around, I believe. Is that correct? Anybody? Here's one in the front corner over here. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Would you speak to the uh, bond issues and the oh, yes. um, right. money matters? Yeah. So there are 11 propositions, um, and I can't remember which number. I think nine of those, no, 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 I think seven of those are bonds. Um, so you'll see that at the, the bottom of your ballot, it's prop A through K. Um, uh, it's a little too much to go through all of them, but we have a breakdown on KUT.org. But the bigger ones are prop A, which is um, $250 million toward affordable, affordable housing. That's the largest chunk of this $925 bond uh, project that the city's putting up for a vote. Um, prop A through... Oh Lord, A through G, those are all those bonds breaking up that $925 million. Like I mentioned, Prop A is the biggest portion of that. Other money going towards parks, towards repairing streets, um, what swing, else, cultural centers, pools. swimming pools, cultural centers. Um, really, a, there's a lot of stuff on there. Um, Audrey is our city hall reporter, but she really wants to be on the pool beat most <laughs> of the time. One of the first stories I did as an intern at KUT was about lifeguard shortages, so it's near and dear to my heart. Every, every summer, <laughs> She does at least two pool stories. It's really, people love their pools here. It's very do we, hot. Do we know what that bond package would cost the average taxpayer? That's a good question. Um, I knew this number at one point. I believe it's about $6 a month. Um, it wouldn't go into effect for a couple of years. You're already experiencing some bond 
weight in your current property taxes from you know 2016 uh, mobility bond i think a 2012 bond so this stuff kind of accumulates over time but it's if i remember right about six dollars a month um and so so that's prop a through g then we have what's my alphabet h through k <laughs> uh h is regarding the planning commission um so that's basically solidifying rules to uh remove planning commissioners it gets a little wonky but there's something in our charter that basically says there should only be a certain number of planning commissioners that have direct uh, uh, associations with development or housing that can be interpreted a lot of different ways. But this gives us a mechanism to remove folks if we think there's too many of those people. And the planning commission does have a lot of power at the city um, to weigh in on development issues. Um, uh, I is basically a gr grammar cleanup of the city charter. <laughs> so if you're a fan of grammar, uh, <laughs> vote for it. Um, <laughs> uh, then we get to J. So J is, I'm sure in some form you all have heard about this, whether or not you know it's Prop J. So it, it's, uh, I call it the ghost of Code Next. Um, it's a little dramatic. But um, so basically we had this, you know, five year, $8 million effort to overhaul our land development code. Sounds super boring, that's, but that's basically all the rules we have for what we can build in the city and where. So it really affects everyone. Um, City decided it wasn't working, so they scrapped that process. They're in in the process of coming up with something new. But if you vote for Prop J, you basically say every voter has the right to vote on a new land development code, comprehensive land development code, which comes around every 20 or 30 years. So if you want that right, um, you know, Typically, it's a thousand pages of uh, zoning laws. Um, if you want that right to weigh in on that, um, that's uh, for Prop J. If you think city council members, those you elected, should just deal with it, then that's against. And then Prop K, last but not least, um, this is to hire an outside auditor to audit every city department. Um, we have a city auditor, but she really just works department by department. Um, and so these are folks who are interested in seeing a citywide um, audit. It would cost the city, they've estimated about three to four million dollars to do that audit. Um, so those are all the propositions. Does that answer your question? <laughs> and then some? Thank you. <laughs> Anyone else? Got one down here in front, and then we'll go to there in the back. Speaking from a place of hope, personally, uh, pending a Democratic knockout, I'm not going to say wave, what is the issue you expect to see move on a national and state and local level? That's for all of you. If the Democrats win? Yes. The House. The House, let's just go with that. So uh, what I think, I mean, what I, th what I, I'm trying to think of what I think they should do versus what they will do. Um, Go with what they will do. <laughs> okay. Gloat. Uh, uh, they'll say what they will do immediately is a whole bunch of stuff that's been not been investigated will be investigated quickly. So including other members of Congress who have not been investigated in the midst of all of this stuff that's been going on. And so I think that doesn't mean impeachment necessarily, but I think there'll be a whole series of investigations on various cabinets, secretaries, parts of the administration, um, money stuff, all of that. So I think that's, that will be, there'll be high energy to do that. I think Nancy Pelosi's talked about trying to pass quickly uh, a thing on controlling money and politics, which is smart, I think. If I were her, 
it, I would do a whole series of accountability measures, right? A whole, and even if you're gonna get defeated in the Senate, and even if they're gonna get vetoed by the president, I would just constantly pass bills that say, that they're basically accountability measures, whether it's political accountability, any kind of justice accountability, and pass immigration reform. They should pass immigration. If the Democrats take the House, within 60 days, they should pass an immigration reform pa passage and make the Senate not not deal with it or vote it down, or, or make the president veto it. So, But I think what will quickly happen, because of all of this energy and because of all this held up stuff that has not been fundamentally investigated over the course of the last 19 months, I think that's where where they'll focus. I think I don't think they could, you know, they're going to have to deal with a budget. So I don't, you know, how they're going to get along to deal with a budget and what they're going to do and how they're going to make compromises is anybody's guess. But I think they're going to have to. It's going to have to be more of a messaging, but outside of the investigative power that they're going to have that they haven't had, it's going to have to be much more of a. Here's who we stand for, and this is what we want to do. Not thinking they're likely to get it through the Senate or to the president and sign it. I'll give you the realistic best case scenario for Democrats at the state level. The best case scenario is that they win enough state house races uh, to get to play a role in the selection of the speaker. They end up with a more moderate speaker who is able to stand up against a bathroom bill or some of the other sort of social issues, red meat issues that the Republicans on the farther right would like to push for. So a Joe Strauss type. Uh, the other best case scenario is that maybe they pick up a couple of state wide races um, with embattled candidates like the Attorney General, who's been, um, uh, Ken Paxton, who's been under a legal cloud for the last couple of years, and Sid Miller, the Ag Commissioner, who says outlandish and largely racist things on social media. Yeah, I mean, and even if at the state level, I mean, go ahead and dream, even if Lupe Valdez were to win the governor's race, the Senate will still be controlled by Republicans. I mean, I, there's no way around that. And in Texas, the lieutenant governor is basically right. the most powerful person in politics. So you could have the House, even if Democrats controlled it, send stuff to the Senate. It, it goes absolutely nowhere. And Lupe Valdez just sits there and waits for no bills to cross her desk. Well, here's, a, here's something that's added to it that sort of tells us, which is counterintuitive. And it's counter what, what a lot of stuff you've heard on all, if you watch news and all of that. The, if the Democrats take the House, the Democratic House is going to be less liberal than it was before. The, the, the Democratic House, because of who is going to get defeated and who is going to get elected by and large, they're going to add more, I would say, more typically moderates who are representing suburban areas and exurban areas that have to know how to compete in a general election. This is the U.S. House. In the U.S. House. So the Democratic House is going to be not like everybody else oh, it's going to becoming socialist and all that. It's actually going to become less liberal and than, than what people view it. The Republican House is going to be, if you can imagine this, is going to be more conservative because the people that are likely to lose most are the ones, if there are a few left, are the ones that are more moderate. They're most likely to lose in this election because they represent districts that are have a, that Hillary won in or whatever that happened to be in. So that's the fascinating develop in this is that the Democratic House, the center of ideology is going to move closer to the center and the Republican ideology is gonna move further from the center in the aftermath of this election. And Audrey, what happens if liberals take over Austin City Council? Sorry to bring it to y'all, they've already taken over. Oh, okay, never mind, all right. 
Um, but I do think it's interesting because there is <laughs> there is this split among the city council, which I've talked about already, and I'm not sure, you know, I've thought about this a lot. It, it strikes me often as a generational divide on city council. We have our youngest city council member ever, council member Greg Kassar. Our city council is generally younger than it has been in the past and more racially diverse. Um, and we are seeing this split among people who have very big disagreements about how the city should change over time. And so even though, you know, folks are, you know, with the Democratic Party on paper, I think there are some big differences about, um, yeah, what should change in Austin as we get, you know, hundreds of people moving here every week. There was one right here. So I have a question, because this election seems like a last chance election, because you, the Democratic Party can't have a better outlook in terms of, if you look at foreign policy with the Khashoggi incident, its timing is right, and Trump has basically said, Human rights are not as important as business considerations. If you look at domestic policy, the tax cut hasn't been that popular with the, with the general public. If you look at you know, the social issues with the Supreme Court nomination and with the whole, uh, you know, even there isn't any issue in which, in a sense, if you're a Democrat, Trump hasn't played to your base. And if despite all that, in this midterms, if the Democrats don't win, wouldn't it be a death blow for the 2020 election and maybe longer than that? Um, I, I, no, I don't think so because I approach things over a span of time, right? And I think there will be many, if the Democrats don't win the House, Democrats will, will uh, just the hand wringing and everything that will happen and all of that things that will go on will happen and they're, they're gonna have to deal with that and everything and it would be a loss because they're expected to take the House back. But I think you have to, Democrats would be smart to look at this as a series of elections where they're they're going to sort of retake the the parts of the country that they shouldn't be they shouldn't have given up or haven't have lost in, and so if you think about 2018, is it, it would be a horrible emotional moment if they didn't do it and for them, and it would it would be hard for them to overcome, but. The, the worst case, the absolute worst case for the Democrats is they're going to have, the worst case, they're gonna have 210 seats in the House. That's the worst case. Republicans have already given up on 15 or 16 House seats. So the worst case is they have 210 seats in the House, which is very close. You have need 218. Look at this, as I said earlier, they are gonna pick up legislative seats. They are gonna pick up governor seats, the governorships, the the state house and so they have to look at this 2018's an election i actually think trump would be better off not having a republican house and not having a republican senate actually if you think about it and how he maneuvers and what he says and what he does and so i think democrats if they were they need a six-year plan which is 2018 is one step 2020 is another step and then 2022 is another step over that span of time, if they were to lose a series of the whole series elections, then then there's it's not as if a majority of the country doesn't want change. A majority of the country wants change. They don't have a vehicle. If that was the case, they didn't have a vehicle to express that in the manner that worked. So there's something fundamentally politically structurally wrong that they weren't 58 percent of the country or 60 percent of the country wasn't able to allow their voices to be heard in a way that it was expressed and that there was a representatives that represented them in that manner. 
or there is a structural thing, and this is part of the situation that I think that, that Democrats have to realize is, is in 20 years, 70% of all of the United States Senate, 70% of the population of the country will be in states that only have 30% of the United States senators in 20 years. 70% of the population will be in states that only have 30. That means 30% of the population will have 70% of the senators. And if you, so you think about that, California has as many senators as Wyoming, right? California has two United States senators. Oregon and Washington have two United States senators, the same as Idaho and Montana. And that I think is a fundamental problem. The Democrats have to figure out a way that they're, they're, they, they do very well in urban areas, exceedingly well in urban areas, and more and more voters are, are moving and have lived around urban areas, which is why they probably will win the popular vote for president for a long period of time. The question becomes is do they have candidates that can appeal in those areas that are the Missouris um, and the Michigans? And I think you'll see evidence that they can this year, Michigan, Wisconsin, but it's a long-term distribution of vote problem that the Democrats have in our system. And under our current system, it's an advantage to the Republicans because of how, that's how votes are distributed. It used to be an advantage to Democrats for years and years and years. Now it's an advantage to Republicans. I think we had one more that was... Can I ask a question about the Texas Ledge? Sure. Is there any chance that they're going to fix the school funding problem so Austin doesn't get hit so hard? No. Nope. <laughs> that, uh, a very quick follow-up is uh, it doesn't matter what the House does. The Texas Senate is not interested in any major comprehensive school finance reform. The guy standing at the bar has had his hand up, and since that was a quick uh, answer, I thought we'd do one more. <laughs> I'll try to do a, a two-part question. One is, can the Democrats come up with a really good candidate for president? That's my first part of the question. Second part of the question is, maybe we should, uh, people should look at uh, a third party, because I feel the Republicans are way too far to the right, and honestly, the Democrats are too far to the left. I'm honestly an independent voter. Well, I mean, I, you have not looked at the Avenatti campaign? I mean, I don't understand what your question is on a <laughs> credible candidate for the Democrats. I don't um, <laughs> so I, I think that that's an, the first, that first part is unknown because um, I, one of the things I was thinking about, there's a number of Democrats that have surfaced that Beto O'Rourke, I'll give you an example of Beto O'Rourke. If Beto O'Rourke was a U.S. Senate candidate in Florida, Beto O'Rourke would win in a landslide. If Beto O'Rourke was a U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, he'd win in a landslide. If Beto O'Rourke was a U.S. Senate in any number of these key states, he would win a landslide. So there are candidates. Andrew Gillum, he's likely to be elected the governor of, of Florida, very likely. He's an out, I don't know if you watched the debate, I watched the love C-SPAN. He's an unbelievable candidate. And sort of the Beto mania has sort of overshadowed him. He's a great candidate. He's gonna win, he's gonna be first black governor of, of Florida. So I think there's a number of candidates that have surfaced. Um, I don't know, and the presidential thing, I don't know if we'll know the answer to that. I think there could be some candidates that surprise on November the 6th that could immediately become talked about as possible presidential candidates. And I think the Democrats would be smart not to just go, well, let's go to the person in waiting. Let's go to the next person waiting in line or whatever it happens to be. 
um, and consider candidates that hold offices in states or candidates that are mayors. Uh, I think a mayoral candidate for president who's dealt with issues and dealt with all the problems and dealt with all of that, I think would be an outstanding candidate. So we don't know the answer to that, but I don't, I think there's enough candidates, new candidates that have risen that are like wow candidates that are a whole new category of candidates that would do very well around the country. Um, and the second part of your question is, I think in the environment, I'm an independent. I put this whole thing together, country over party. We got to have people to vote country over their parties. I think the parties, the party system that we have now is doesn't allow us today uh, to govern this country today. Washington warned about it in his farewell address about partisanship and what it might become, and it's exactly what it's becoming, tribalized in our country. The problem is, is a system is such a way that unless one of the parties completely falters like the Whigs did, which happened in our country, and the Whigs faltered and the GOP rose in it and they nominated a candidate, Abraham Lincoln, and they became a new party and dominated, one of the parties is gonna have to completely, completely falter in the midst of that. My feeling, the odds are, that's the Republican Party is gonna, I, I don't know what they do in the aftermath of Donald Trump because the voters, the, the proportion of voters that were there are, are gonna want a Trump-like figure, maybe not him himself, but somebody that says things the similar way. Don Jr. <laughs> <laughs> or Eric, if you're more of an Eric guy. Sorry. So I think there'll be a new party, but in the short term, in the short term, if your goal, in the short term right now, the choice, in, in, in for many, I know it's unfortunate, but the choice really fundamentally is between the red and the blue today. And my advocacy is, if you at all want to hold this administration accountable and you want any level of checks and balances, and if you're an independent, there's really not many alternatives to vote in this election if that's your desire. If you believe in the Constitution and the checks and balances and all of that, and that's why I think independence on election day, they will fundamentally decide this election. It won't be the great Democratic turnout, which will be helpful, or the great Republican turnout. Independents always decide this election. They voted for the Republicans by 15, 16, 17 points in 2014, the same margin in 2010, same margin for the Democrats in 2006, and in each of those cases, the independents determine that vote, that in this race. And so, I think in the short term, but in the long term, one of the parties will falter, and something will take it. Something will emerge and take its place. Well, we know you got a lot of water to boil, so we're going to wrap it up now. Um, thanks again thanks, to ben. our guests tonight: Matthew Dowd, Emily Ramshaw, and Audrey McGlinchey. Uh, you can see uh, Mr. Dowd on ABC that Sunday mornings, right? This Sunday. This Sunday on ABC, Sunday morning. Uh, also, of course, Emily Ramshaw is everywhere at texastribune.org. Audrey McGlinchey has some really great explainers on the mayor's race, and we have things up on all the city council stuff and all the props and state house and state legislature and blah, 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 at KUT.org. And we're in the middle of a fun drive. We need your support. Your support allows us to come here and do the Cactus Cafe. Your support moving forward allows us to do even more. You can go to KUT.org. And that's and it. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben Philpott, for guest hosting. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You've been listening to A Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening.